leaders like our next uh, speaker and those who will come on the panel that he very much had in mind as people who are involved in such key ways in extracting the real practicalities of how we meet this challenge together. Uh, and I'm really pleased to introduce uh, our next speaker who can then lead into that panel and herself is the winner of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce's Business Leader of the Year Award. She is President and Chief Executive Officer for GE Canada and leads international advocacy for the newly announced GE Vernova, GE's portfolio of energy businesses. So please extend a very warm welcome to the summit to Heather Chalmers. Thanks very much. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for the opportunity um, and allowing me for, to make a couple of uh, remarks. I think you'll see that there's very uh, consistent messagings, messages from what you heard this morning and from last night. And I'll start by saying it's, it's already been six and a half years since the historic Parrot Climate Accords came into effect in 2016. A watershed moment for humanity and changed how we approach climate change forever. And we were just six and a half years away from 2030, the date by which Canada's Paris Agreement goal of reducing emissions by 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels will be judged. And uh, if you look at Dale's data that he just showed, we've made progress, but we're a far cry from achieving that goal. And then 2035, the year by which Canada wants to achieve a net zero grid, is only 11 and a half years away. Progress can only be achieved through action. If we do not start taking a Team Canada approach to this challenge and moving the needle, we may never catch up. Or in our beloved hockey terms and core leaves, we have to decide whether or not we want to be on the power play or the penalty kill. So what does the Team Canada approach include? Tackling climate change and building the clean economy of the future is not just the responsibility of the federal government. If climate change is our agreed upon national priority, we will need coordinated prioritization between the federal government and provincial and municipal partners. Each order of government must play its part to advance the necessary infrastructure projects required for a clean economy. Permitting should be streamlined and regulatory barriers should be reduced where reasonable for projects in strategic sectors and those that reduce emissions either here or in other parts of the world. However, I do want to be clear that this does not mean ignoring or superseding the rights and interests of our Indigenous communities. Building a clean economy must actively advance reconciliation with Indigenous peoples as equal partners as part of the Team Canada approach. Another area where provinces, regional governments, and municipalities can have an outsized impact in shaping Canada's clean economy is workforce investment, and we heard this in spades this morning. Businesses, the labour community, post-secondary institutions, and school boards all have a role to play, ensuring workers have the necessary skills to make an impact by collectively investing in training and development. For all the resources with which Canada is blessed, people are our most important and sustainable competitive advantage. We will not be successful unless we have the people needed to do the critical work, and whether that's in our labs, on the factory floor, or at project sites across the country. We need our best and brightest minds from all communities and backgrounds to bring their very perspectives to unlock ideas that are truly collaborative and considerate of all. Now the sectors for our Team Canada approach. 
In last month's budget, the federal government underscored that Canada's climate and economic goals are intertwined. It placed big bets on five sectors and technologies that will form the foundation for a clean economy of the future. Clean electricity, critical minerals, zero emissions transportation, carbon capture, and clean fuels such as hydrogen. So what does this resemble practically for something like clean electricity? The federal government announced investment tax credits to defray capital costs, provide strategic finance, and launch targeted programming in support of cleaning the existing grid while massively increasing generation to keep up with the growing demand. However, it's the provinces that, as the ultimate stewards of our electricity systems who have the critical role of both managing today's grid, and that's aligning generation, transmission, and distribution, while also devising and investing in the necessary infrastructure to meet Canada's zero emissions electricity commitment by 2035. Not surprising, this is another example where there needs to be optimized alignment, cooperation, and collaboration between both levels of government to optimally straddle the reliability, sustainability, and affordability trilemma. And from a technology uh, supplier's perspective, and circling back to my workforce investment remarks, and Nicole, you and I have chatted about this, predictable long-term procurement plans from provinces enable supply chain partners to appropriately scale operations ensure we, and ensure we can meet timing expectations. And while clean electricity will be a pillar of Canada's emissions reduction goals, electrification is not necessarily feasible in all cases. And therefore, governments must work together to advance things like carbon capture and sequestration and clean fuel projects at scale. The federal government plays a role as convener, but it can also provide additional certainty, and we talked about this earlier, through financial mechanisms such as contracts for differences to help unlock billions of dollars in private sector and major institutional investment across these technologies. So what does the energy transition to a net zero future, a new era of energy look like? There is no magic bullet. There's no one size fits all to decarbonizing Canada's economy. And I commend the federal government because in budget 2023, they introduced a fiscal framework to incentivize clean technology deployment that recognizes this. The energy transition will look very different to Canadians depending on where they live, and it's critical that we neither expect nor prescribe any two provinces to reach net zero in the same way. The portfolio of technology solutions required in each province will look different and be determined by existing infrastructure, natural resource availability, and the policy and regulatory environment. And although these diverse regional and provincial pathways can make it more difficult to achieve national goals, it may ultimately prove beneficial in the long run. If we can manage our own decarbonization journeys from coast to coast to coast, we can demonstrate global leadership across a variety of pathways that others can learn from, while also creating new economic opportunities domestically and exports for national or international markets. And I'm going to give you two examples just from my company alone, GE Vernova. The first is small modular reactors, and we heard a little bit about this this morning. We are working with Ontario Power Generation, SNC-Lavalin, and Acon to deploy the West's first grid-scale SMR at OPG's Darlington facility by 2028, and the plan is to be on time and on budget. Yes. 
Um, this small modular reactor supply chain we develop in Canada to, to support the first-of-a-kind technology won't just support Canada's energy transition. Um, it will support emissions reductions and increase energy security in places like Central and Eastern Europe by retiring coal and reducing reliance on Russian gas. In the weeks following our technology selection by OPG, GE signed a three-way uh, party agreement with our supply chain partner, BWXT in Cambridge, Ontario, and Synthos Green Energy, a Polish company, to support SMR deployment in Poland. This supply chain participation by BWXT's Canadian facilities could generate more than a billion dollars in GDP alone. A second example I'll share is offshore wind. And although Canada doesn't have an offshore wind industry just yet, it will play a critical role in the development of offshore wind globally. Supported by investments from the federal and Quebec governments, our LM Wind Power Facility um, expanded our, um, our plant and retooled it to manufacture wind turbine blades for the offshore wind industry. This facility is based in Gaspé, and it's the first of a kind. It's only the only one of its kind in Canada, and it now manufactures blades longer than a football field. These blades will be exported to the U.S., where they will help support the offshore wind market as grid-scale projects start to get off the ground in the East Coast. And these are just two examples. I, I know there's many of you in the room that could share many, many more that demonstrate what happens when we have a Team Canada approach to the energy transition. Internally, we talk at GE Vernova about the next few years as part of a decade of action on climate change and sustainable development. And the same applies to Canada. And there are many reasons why Canada can both manage but in fact thrive and lead in the energy transition. And I, I'll try and match Minister Champagne's enthusiasm, but we are blessed. We are blessed in Canada with rich and diverse natural resources, favorable geology and geography, world-class research institutions, technical expertise, and global access through broad-based trade agreements. But the clock is ticking. And are we going to be on the power play or the penalty kill? Canada's prosperity is built upon a legacy of national infrastructure projects, whether it's the Pan-Canadian Railways or the Trans-Canada Highway System. We know how to do this. But it will take all of us, governments, Indigenous communities, energy producers, OEMs, utilities, research institutions, and others, to work together to make the vision of a clean economy a reality. Together, we have the energy to change the world. So I, I always say, go Team Canada. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Heather. Really appreciate those insights. And I think I would sit for a moment on the uh, decade of action comments, certainly uh, many others. And Mark included have referenced this being a decade of delivery. And I know that's been coming up as a, a key theme so far. I'll jump right into bringing up our extraordinary panel to join you on stage there as you get comfortable. I'd now like to invite the CEO of Potentia, Ben Grijos, to the stage, CEO of Water Power Canada, Gilbert Bennett, and to moderate this conversation, the President and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association, John Gorman. Welcome to you all. Thanks very much. Thank you, Braden. Uh, good morning, everyone. This has uh, been a terrific start uh, to the day, and I'm absolutely delighted uh, to be able to help facilitate and moderate a discussion uh, here which is entitled uh, Charging Ahead, Electricity and the New Era of Energy. And uh, I have with me a 
not only some terrific speakers with a great deal of insight into different aspects of the electricity sector, but I think a good representation of the types of generation that we're going to need as we try to double or triple the size of our electricity generation uh, here in Canada and, and ensure that all of that uh, electricity generation is carbon free. And so starting uh, at the, the far side there, I'm not, not going to go into uh, bios, but uh, Gilbert Bennett, who is the uh, acting president of uh, Water Power Canada. Of course, uh, Heather Chalmers, who so uh, beautifully set the stage for this discussion. Hi, Heather, good to see you. GE is doing some terrific things. And Ben Greenhouse, CEO of Potentia, someone uh, who uh, I used to deal with quite a bit when I was in the renewable side. Thank you very much for, for, for joining us. Everybody could get have a quick round of applause for our thanks you. Now, look, I don't know if the, the nuclear advocate was put in the, the moderating dis the, the position here so that I didn't talk about nuclear, but just bear with me. I'll be able to pepper some things in there. Uh, we've, got, we've got water, we've got uh, wind and solar. Uh, Heather, you can speak to a variety of things. I think um, you've mentioned small modular reactors already, uh, but, but I know there's some expertise there in, in gas-related generation as well, and, and maybe we can call on you for insights for that. So we're going to go through three different topic areas here. Uh, last time I was on stage, I think it was with, uh, in a discussion with Lisa Raitt, and I was chastised for not sticking to the script. So I promised to do my absolute best this time to at least stick with part of the flow. So question number one, and, and we'll start down at the end and work our way through here and then, and then mix things up a bit. I want to talk about budget 2023 uh, and just uh, the, the sort of impact and potential that that has for the sectors that we're, we're speaking about here today. Uh, what I will say quickly is that from a, a nuclear sector perspective, uh, this has been an absolute game changer, Budget 2023, uh, for a variety of reasons. It has elevated nuclear, both large and small, to uh, to a, a position of being able to uh, deliver on a level playing field with the other uh, promising technologies that we need, which, which Heather spoke to. And it, it is really mobilizing uh, our industry in, in very practical and profound ways right now. But Gilbert, uh, when you think about Budget 2023 and, and thinking about water power, uh, what, what was the impact on your sector and how is it positioned now? So I think there are, there are a couple of key points that come out of the budget, and they're, they're both positive in my view. First of all, we think about how the electricity sector is actually developed in Canada and who does that. Those decisions are taken by utilities, and those utilities make economic decisions about mm -hmm. what to put in their portfolio. And the choices that go in that portfolio uh, all of the non-emitting ones, all the renewable technologies, the non-emitting ones are covered by the investment tax credit. So without trying to be electricity system planners, the federal government has successfully said, all of you renewable and non-emitting technologies are eligible. And they found a way to extend that benefit to the majority of the electricity utilities of Canada, which are crown-owned. So you don't have to be uh, a taxable entity to, to capture that benefit. So in my view, the playing field is leveled for all of our renewable and non-emitting technologies and the individual investment decisions that are made by Canadian utilities with what goes in the portfolio, whether it's nuclear, whether it's hydro, uh, whether it's uh, the other renewables, they get to make that decision and ratepayers benefit from that. Explicitly, the benefit goes to customers. The objective here is to avoid increasing electricity rates in a non-due manner. So in my view, they have they've been successful 
in putting that package together and keeping everybody on a level playing field. The second important, important commitment in the budget is one that commits to dealing with the environmental assessment regulatory permitting process. And that is essential. We think about 2030, we're here today, seven years from, from that deadline, it would be unlikely to get a project completed in Canada without getting significant improvement in that process. That's extremely important. And it's not just relevant for the generators that I described. It's critically important for transmission projects as well, that we have to get things permitted so we can get them built, so we can get things done. If you could, I, I wanted to ask you just to take a minute to talk about water power in Canada because it is so significant, right? So could you just give us a, a sure. snapshot? Really quick snapshot. Uh, water power hydroelectricity in Canada is about two-thirds of our electricity supply nationally. We think about the, the major uh, hydro producers in Canada that will work west, east, British Columbia, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, Newfoundland, Labrador would be the major hydro facilities. And... Uh, four of those jurisdictions, uh, more than 90% of their generation is, uh, is based on hydropower. That will be important for a number of reasons, and we'll probably get into it a little further in the discussion, but the attributes of that technology, first of all, it's a, it has long-term storage that goes with it. We think about storage and some of those utilities, we're talking about months and years of storage. Seasonally, it's important that we take, uh, energy that we don't need in the summer and be able to deliver heating demand in the winter. So that will be an important question for us going forward as we start displacing other heating sources. Uh, it's reliable. Technology has been around for 100 years. The uh, uptime expectations on a hydro facility are well in excess of 95, 98%. So it contributes to uh, our reliable service. The technology provides inertia to the system and maintains system reliability and can uh, vary output to meet changes of demand. So the functions that utilities rely on to deliver reliable service to their customers, um, hydropower does that in spades. Uh, nuclear capability is important as well. You think about its ability to, again, run reliably and deliver firm service to customers. And one of our challenges looking forward is how we displace the capabilities that are currently provided by the fossil fleet, which do some of the same things. We have to replace those with our non-emitting technologies. Uh, and in my view, hydropower is going to play a critical role in maintaining grid reliability while we integrate our other technologies into the system. Great, great points. Thanks for that. I mean, competitive advantage for Canada with that two-thirds electricity coming from water power. We're seeing that. You had 15% nuclear. Ben, renewables come, comes into this. Wind and solar. Do you want to talk a little bit about the state of play there? And, and of course, a, a little bit about your company. Sure. Uh, no, thank you. And thanks for that, Gilbert. Um, so I, I was thinking about this as I came in and I was thinking I wanted you to walk away from hearing me thinking of three things. Uh, the first thing is that although I'm a shameless booster of renewables, uh, I I hope you don't think I am claiming they're a panacea. Um, I don't I don't think there's a path certainly to 2030 where, and no one's claiming this, where there's 100% renewables. I don't even think that's realistic in 2050. So, so I think start there. People... Who, who want to sort of argue about renewables often throw up the idea of intermittency. Um, no surprise that everyone in the industry understands that renewables are intermittent, but there's ways to resolve that. The biggest source of intermittency in any grid is users. So grids are well used to working with intermittency. And at the levels of penetration right now, it's just not an issue. Um, 
The second thing I wanted you to, to walk away from here with is to understand that renewables aren't, they're not novel, they're not new, they're not experimental. I was at a show in Calgary and they were, uh, the, the battery storage renewables people were on a panel with nuclear fusion. Right, and I was thinking this is this is ridiculous. Th these are these are economic technologies that have been working for for two decades or more in a commercial uh, capacity. And then the third thing is that they are the cheapest form of new generation. If you want to build new power, which we inevitably do as we talk about electrification, renewables, while not being a panacea, are the cheapest form. And and Dale, you mentioned earlier how just on time the stats came out for you. Uh, Lazard, who's a who's sort of a, a resource on the levelized costs of renewables, in they focus on the U.S., but it's largely applicable. Came out, I think, on April third, and I wrote down some numbers. With no subsidies, uh, in the, again, these are all U.S. dollars, but with no subsidies, uh, wind is twenty nine percent cheaper than carbon uh, than than combined cycle gas, seventy one percent cheaper than uh, simple cycle, and seventy three percent cheaper than nuclear. When you add in carbon, and in the U.S., they talk about carbon at 20 to $40 a ton. When you add in a $40 carbon ton, it goes to 40% cheaper than combined cycle, 73% cheaper than simple cycle, and 73% cheaper than nuclear because nuclear has no carbon price. Um, if, you, if you look in uh, solar, solar, again, I'll just jump to the with a $40 carbon price, so it's, it is 27% uh, cheaper than combined cycle and 67% cheaper than simple cycle. And, uh, and nuclear as well. Um, now you add in ITCs, right? Into Canada, that's an unsubsidized cost. I add, add ITCs and PTCs in the US and Canada, and you can see how economic these are. Again, they're not a panacea, but let's get going, right? We know 9% of our emissions are from electricity. Let's clean that up. As we're increasing the demand, let's add these. Um, we're gonna need everything we've got. Um, and then to come back to the intermittency and talk about storage, I think we need to think about what we're trying to solve, right? Intermittency is, of course, an issue for renewables. Um, years ago, I worked for uh, one of the leaders in, this, in the North American sector, NextEra Energy. NextEra uh, has come up with this idea of near-fur renewables. What they mean by near-fur is renewables that have are, are partnered with storage that is sufficient to roughly match the dispatchability characteristics of fossil for the four peak hours in a system. And they've come to the conclusion that you need about 25% of the, of the nameplate capacity for four hours. So for a 100 megawatt solar project, you'll need about 25 megawatts running for four hours for 100 megawatt hours. Their estimate is by the end of the decade, that should cost somewhere between 4 to $6 a megawatt hour, which is about 10 to 20% of the cost of those prices for renewables that I already told you are significantly cheaper than fossil. So from the... From the point of view of integrating into the system, solving some of the issues, we have economic solutions today. Now, what does 20, do you want me to talk about 2023? Yeah. Yeah, I'll jump in. So what does budget 2023 do for us? So I thought about this thinking about what's been holding us back. Um, Heather, I think you'll probably know this more than others. The supply chain volatility is obviously a big one. The second thing that holds us back is transmission availability. Um, and, and, uh, you've already spoken about the clean electricity ITC available for, uti uh, for utilities. Um, I think that will help us with transmission infrastructure and necessary upgrades that have been holding us back. Permitting timelines, we've talked about. I think that's a critical one for us. 
I think it's a, probably a shared view that we are going to need all technologies. Uh, incredible uh, cost declines in, in the, the cost of, of wind and solar, of course, but I think also a general knowledge here that the most cost-effective, most resilient electricity system that you're going to achieve is one that is balanced with different technologies uh, rather than just uh, you know a, a zeroing in on a particular technology, right? We should be striving for that. So Heather, uh, what what's your view of how did you react to budget 2023? You touched on it uh, when when you were uh, up here, but how was your company? How's the sector positioned? Yeah, no, not, maybe I'll just take a step back and a, a little bit of level setting. GE one third of the world's power generation comes from our equipment whether that is nuclear, whether that's hydro, whether that's wind, whether that's gas. So we are in a very unique position that in a lot of cases we can be technology agnostic and we can be that trusted advisor. It is, it's a privileged position, uh, that, but we can be that trusted advisor as countries, provinces, utilities, customers navigate their, their place to, to net zero. And it will take a, a portfolio of technology solutions. And for the purpose of this panel, because you've touched upon others, I will I will speak about gas and I'll, and I'll circle back to budget 2023. Gas will play a role in the energy tra transition, but it will be abated. And by that, I mean, you'll either use clean fuel on the front end, and that could be hydrogen as an example, or you'll abate it on the back end through carbon capture and sequestration. But the, the abatement um, solution in Canada will look very different depending on where you are. Uh, think about Alberta and Saskatchewan. They have history with carbon capture. They have favorable geology for carbon catchers, capture. They've got existing infrastructure, and certainly I don't want to speak on behalf of Pathways Alliance, but they have a plan to use carbon capture, capture at scale in order to get to their um, net zero commitments. You compare that to Ontario and perhaps the Atlantic provinces that don't have the same favorable geology, but will need gas as part of their reliability solution. And so their abatement um, path will probably be more geared towards hydrogen or, or um, cleaner fuels. With respect to the 2023 budget, I think there was a few things that were noteworthy there. The uh, clean electricity includes abated gas, which, is, which was terrific, certainly, to, to see that. Um, think about the carbon capture investment tax credit that provides you know, 50% um, uh, cost coverage for capital costs, both on new units and um, retrofits, which was something that certainly that we wanted to see included in there. And then the hydrogen investment tax credit that will help scale and accelerate hydrogen generation to use as a, as a fuel on the front end. So on, on balance, we were, we were very pleased with the, the budget 2023. Well, it's hard not to be pleased when you cover such a broad swath of the, uh, the energy yes. sector, but that's a, lot of a positive moving forward. So look, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to pull out a couple of key points just by way of summary. So it's in people's mind that I'm going to go into some uh, specific questions, but um, Heather, I loved your comment about the size of this country and uh, the different solutions that are going to be required in, in different parts of the country, right? We, to, the, the resources are just not the same in each uh, part of the country and it's going to require that customized uh, solution. And uh, Ben, your point about, uh, you know, uh, wind and solar not yet having reached their their real potential in terms of uh, penetration uh, for it yet to be a, an issue where we really have to accommodate in in complicated or, or cost uh, costly ways. 
And and Gilbert, the, the, I wanted to highlight that point that you brought up at the very outset, which was this electricity investment tax credit being extended to utilities, right? And the importance of that, I think something like 75% of the new generation uh, projects that are, are built are, are, are handled by utilities. So it has been absolutely essential that utilities have access to to that uh, to to that tax credit, and uh, you know, Ben. Just on a side note, that does come with a caveat that uh, those savings do have to be paid passed on to the ratepayers and, and the project. Right? So now to jump into a couple of uh, specific questions, I'm going to start with uh, Gilbert. It's it's about refurbishment. Heather actually mentioned this in a different way, ref retrofits, but it's about refurbishment of existing assets and uh, what sort of role that is going to play as we strive to have. Uh, longer serving clean electricity, for example, Absolutely. in the water power space. There are a couple. There are a couple of important aspects to refurbishments, and, and maybe secondly, redevelopment. Um, the hydro fleet in Canada, um, you know, is a well-known, long-lived asset. So we have facilities in Canada that are over 100 years old, and most of the investment that went into those facilities was in the civil works, and they don't require a lot of long-term maintenance, but they do require maintenance. They have to be maintained to ensure uh, safety in particular and the integrity of the civil works. But refurbishing, uh, refurbishing existing facilities, uh, you know, obviously, firstly, extends the life of the asset. Secondly, for those facilities that were built 40, 50 years ago, current technology is more efficient, has more capability than the ones that were designed and installed uh, five decades ago. So we can look at this in two ways. There's an incremental opportunity to really in a cost-effective way, add to the capability of those plants. So we'll pick up in round numbers on a 50-year-old unit, 5% in terms of capacity efficiency based on our current design for, uh, for technology compared to what we saw 50 years ago. The second thing we're doing that's really important is we're maintaining those assets to live for another 50 years and to, make, to, to continue to be uh, a reliable component in the system. The other, the other side of this that, that is inevitably going to be looked at is what are the opportunities to, to redevelop and to expand the capacity of some existing facilities. So we've seen this in a number of places in, uh, in Quebec, in British Columbia, where additional units to, to provide more capacity in those plants uh, has been done over the past couple of decades. I suspect that will take a much more important role because the environmental footprint is already there, the civil works are already there, and it likely will be cost-effective to add capability to those facilities so that we can better, better integrate variable renewables into the system, have more capacity on peak, have better ability to, uh, to compensate and balance the, the additional renewables that are inevitably going to be added to the system. Right. So it's, a, it's important for a couple of points of view. Yeah, and then just to put a, a fine point on the sort of lifespan of these assets, it's important that as, as we try to double or triple the size of our generating suite here in Canada, we don't want to have a bunch of assets that are operating right now retiring just to, to have to replace them on top of everything else, right? And I know uh, later on, we'll, I'll be speaking to uh, Nicole Butcher up here on stage, and she'll talk about the nuclear refurbishments that are going on, but those are going to extend the life of those plants well into the 2060s, right? So we don't have to worry about that as we try to, as we try to build up new generation. Uh, Can other, I build on that? Yeah. I, I think I agree with everything you said. And I think um, it applies to, you know, a portfolio of different technologies. And, and I'll just share that at GE, we see Canada um, doing some very interesting things in hydro that we want to share with the rest of the world. 
But in, in, in addition to adding uh, capacity and adding life, I think when we are faced with the time crunch that we are, there's a lot that you can do with existing facilities today in order to reduce emissions in the shorter time frame while we're getting the permitting done, while we're getting the regulatory approvals in place for new net new greenfield projects. So I think that's something that we can't lose sight of. And then the, the final point I'll just add to what you, we talked about is, unfortunately, you know, Canada's always been plagued with a little bit of a productivity challenge. This is a perfect opportunity for us to step up and reinvest in what we've already got and start to bend that productivity curve. So that, that can just add to what you already got. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Heather. Uh, Ben, some of the some of the projects, the wind projects in particular, they've been around for twenty years now, right? I mean, is this is it, are they getting are those initial projects getting to the point now where they need to be, uh, or can be refurbished and expanded? Yeah, yeah. So I know that uh, in Alberta, I think the first project in Canada to be refurbished has been done, replaced. When you, they're they're perfect examples for it. You've got the infrastructure there from an interconnection collection. Um, I was thinking about a decade ago, I built a project with GE turbines. 190 megawatts, about 99 turbines. Uh, two years ago, we built a 200 megawatt project with 50 turbines. Those are now, those are now old technology. You, you can just not only can you go and refurbish it and use existing infrastructure, but to your point, you can get uh, much much better production out of it. And I won't even talk about panels where they've you know doubled or tripled in in uh, in capacity from a single panel. So yes, it's a bit of a no brainer. We're even seeing some places where it's done before the natural lifetime is is removed because it's just economic. Great. Thank you for that. Um, okay. So we're going to move now to a, a, a second specific question and then a more general one. I want to zero in on an issue that's come up a couple of times, most notably by you, Heather, and it's around the supply chain. I mean, there's there, there are, let's face it, there are, are just a lot of bottlenecks, uh, you know, that, that face us, but su supply chain is certainly one of those. What, 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 when you think of the supply chain challenge, and especially if you think of it in terms of Canada and the United States having to go through this whole transition at the same time. How are you viewing the supply chain challenge? Um, great, yeah, great question. It was mentioned earlier today. I when I uh, talk to my team, we we use the term VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, and that has certainly been our world for the last uh, few years. Whether that's starting with COVID and then what's unfolding in Europe and, and you see the impact on the uh, the energy supply chain. It, two things I would comment um, with respect to ways that we, I don't want to say get ahead of it, but just be more thoughtful about it. And um, one is the U, U.S. and Canada and our integrated supply chains. And I just mentioned two examples with the small modular reactors and offshore wind blades. I use this sentence all the time, whether I'm talking to Ambassador Cohen or Ambassador Hillman, we build things better together. It is not an either or, but it, it is an and, and there's a tremendous amount of opportunity if we continue to take that approach. And the second piece that we talk about, and I, I mentioned it in my opening remarks, is the more visibility that the supply chain can get in terms of fir firm commitments over the long term, that allows us to make the necessary investments, whether that is in manufacturing plant or workforce that's going to be required to do the work. So those are the, I would see the two big things that we're very focused on, building things better together and then um, frame agreements or long-term uh, long commitments to supply. I, you know, I, this point about the, the U.S.-Canada 
energy transition ecosystem is just so important, right? We could spend an hour up here talking about how essential it is that we get that right, but really important point. Um, look, uh, Gilbert, I'm going to turn to you instead of uh, speaking about um, supply chain. I'm going to ask you about the transmission challenge from a, a water point of view. Well, it's a big one. Um, you know, you could look at could look at the whole supply chain question. We could look at permitting. Uh, it's a given that the resources that we have, the energy resources, are generally not located where the demand is. And you know, in, in today's world, about the only facility that's easy to place close to a major center is a is a nuclear plant, and we see that in Ontario today. Uh, you know, our wind, our wind resources, our solar resources, our hydro resources are not necessarily where we would like them to be. Transmission uh, is an important challenge that has to be fixed. Um, permitting process is extensive. The environmental assessment is challenging. The consultation, community acceptance, when we have facilities that are not located where the demand is, is not straightforward. And the easiest one that I can I can point to there is the work of the Atlantic Loop in the, in the Atlantic Canada. Uh, the transmission originates in Quebec, goes through New Brunswick, and it's in Nova Scotia. And there will inevitably be communities along the way and indigenous groups who may not agree with that project because they would say, like we, like we talked about earlier, what's in it for me? Why do I want this in my backyard? And it's great for us to talk about the national and international imperative, reduce our emissions, but some of those questions will be a lot closer to home. And they'll say, why are we supporting this? And, and that is a challenge that we all need to work together. And we need to get those things done, and we need to get them done fairly quickly. The permitting process on a large-scale transmission line is five, six years today. The construction interval is another five years beyond that. So as we sit here today, without transmission service agreements, without power purchase agreements, we don't have the fundamental construct to get that loop built, although intellectually we all know it needs to be done. It's challenging, and there are ways through it. We've seen other projects make it happen, and I think if we are aspirational and are committed to getting it done, those things can be done, but it will take will, and it will take the will of multiple provinces and multiple jurisdictions. And and political will as, as well, right, as we heard on our opening panel with uh, Lisa Raiden and McClellan. Um, Ben, I'm going to ask you to to do a little bit of double duty here and uh, bring the scale down and talk a little bit about the significance of smart grid. Sure. So I'll, I'm I'm far from an expert on on smart grid, but I think just generally speaking about it, it's it's I've been in the industry so long. I think it's common sense that the, if you can generate closer to the load, um, better. Now, as you as you've mentioned, Gilbert, that's very hard right. with uh, with large ones. Potentially, is all is. Canada's largest rooftop solar owner as well. We have panels on on schools and, and Home Depots. And I think in general, that's a smart way to go because not only does it reduce losses, but it also um, reduces the, the demand on our existing transmission infrastructure. The extent you can have more there, you're not pulling as much through the line, so you can put more in. Um, and then more broadly, just thinking back to the question earlier about software, about smart Right, the way we plan—I'm not a transmission planner—but the way we plan for transmission line capacity right now is really based on a, a dispatchable fossil fuel-based system. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a much more intelligent way to do it. And now it's back to that million-dollar question: makes sense logically, but figuring out how to do it is yeah. a much harder and smarter question. 
I, I could tell that Heather would love to jump in on that. But no. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> we don't have the time for that. Great. I will just say that this, uh, you know, you something that you're sort of touching on is this idea of a prosumer, right? The yeah. the individual who 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 produces and consumes and and, and trades their own uh, electricity in a really uh, efficient way. So we're going to we're going to close uh, close our session here by me asking uh, each of you the same question. I'm going to start with Gilbert and just finish with Ben to bring us home here. Uh, but I'm always in, 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 intently interested in this. And it, it's when when you think about this challenge we have ahead of us, Gilbert, going into 2050, a net zero future, what is it that keeps you up at, at night in terms of the challenge? And, and what is it that gives you optimism? I think the first thing is the imperative to get started. And I'll reflect quickly on the question came about electric vehicles. Uh, incenting, incenting electric vehicles, incenting electrification is an important step. It creates demand for utilities, and that's a signal for them to make investments, to sign PPAs, to get additional capacity, energy, and other system, and meet demand. So that's how we accomplish this goal. The second important question will be to continue to do that. People are still installing natural gas furnaces in their house today, and they're setting themselves up for a 25-year asset that will continue to burn fossil fuel. Uh, there are opportunities there. We need to get people to make decisions to electrify. Now, it's easier to do that when you're dealing with a limited number of large industrial customers. But to achieve the goal, we have to get everybody making that decision in a timely manner. And the other point on vehicles, somebody has a vehicle typically between 5 and 10 years, and then they make another decision. You make a decision to build a new house, put a heating system in it, it's there for 25, 50 years. So we do need to start thinking about creative ways to facilitate the demand, to send a signal, to get the project done. Thanks, Hillary. Um, Heather, what keep what keeps you up and what gets you out of bed? What gets me out of bed? I I am incredibly bullish on Canada's opportunity to not only meet our uh, net zero goals, but to be a leader in it and to create green economic sectors. And we talk about nuclear. We talked about hydro. Carbon capture is another one. If, if we do this, if we do this fast. Um, we get the benefit of building the supply chain. We get the benefit of building the workforce, and then we can export that around the world. However, what keeps me up at night is, is very much aligned with my opening remarks on this Team Canada approach. We're going to need cooperation. We're going to need collaboration. Not all, not all priorities or permits or regulations are created equal. At some point, we have to make conscious choices in order to move things forward. And, and that's where I think we, we have to pick a couple of these big projects and get very practical about them and move them forward, learn from them, and then expand and scale. Ben? Yeah, I think I'll echo a lot of what's been said. I think what worries me the most is sort of slowing us down is a, a paralysis by analysis. There's so many paths to get where we need to go. I, I would venture that probably for the next decade, 90% of them look the same. So let's just get going. Um, and, and to your, I like your Team Canada approach. There's, there's, there's too much. Canada is very unique in that, at least in the electricity sector, it's it's all provincial regulation, mm -hmm. and it just makes it very unworkable to do anything federally. And I don't think you're going to solve it by removing that because that that's another 50-year project. But I think we need to start talking and working and not looking for the the, the perfect uh, solution, but just go with something that works and gets us on the path. Thank you. Have a round of applause for our panelists. A good discussion. Thanks for being here. Glad to see you.